You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's a fundamental good that's coming out of this, but maybe for the wrong reasons. So we should all be concerned about it, but the main piece is probably going to be disruption. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of two U.S. senators issuing a new warning about CIA surveillance. I've got the story of proposed legislation that puts guardrails on social media algorithms. And later in the show, my conversation with Ron Brash from Adalus, going to be discussing software attack vectors faced by the shipping community. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? Sure. Well, this story I could have found anywhere, but the one I'm using for this article came from Politico. It is about a letter sent by two United States senators, Ron Wyden, our old fallback, uh, (laughs) of Oregon, and Martin Heinrich of New Mexico. And they sent a letter to the director of the CIA, uh, Avril Haines, alleging that the CIA has, quote, secretly conducted its own bulk surveillance program outside the statutory framework that the uh, Congress and the public believe govern this collection. Hmm. So stepping back for uh, a minute, there's been this concern that there's a level of surveillance that takes place off the books. Any surveillance uh, that occurs in the United States with the assistance of our service providers or on the internet backbone that runs through our country, that's generally governed by FISA Hmm. uh, or um, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act if we're doing surveillance on foreign nationals. Okay. Uh, But FISA does not cover surveillance that occurs overseas. Uh, So if we are gleaning information either through human intelligence overseas uh, or, uh, you know, collecting information that goes into a database that's stored overseas, that's not governed by FISA. It's instead governed by an executive order. Hmm. Um, So there's no statutory law. The executive order is uh, 12333 or as the uh, experts in the industry call it, 12333. <laughs> and who, 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 uh, who executed this executive order? That was the Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan, in 1981. Oh, wow. Um, so we've had this uh, regime in place for about 40 years now. President Bush made some minor changes to it, but largely the framework has been in place. So Most it's of- worth noting, I mean, that's a pre-internet framework. It sure is. Yeah. Um, most of Executive Order 12333 is relatively anodyne. Anodyne. I mean, it's, you know, which agency has authority over which type of surveillance. Um, but there are a couple of important provisions in there. One of them says that you can retain communications uh, you receive from overseas surveillance 
even if one side of that communication is from a U.S. person. Ah. And that's where the controversy lies, is in these incidentally collected communications. Now, we know when those types of communications are collected in the United States, that goes into a database. There's been this huge controversy uh, as to whether the government can conduct backdoor searches into that database. Hmm. What these senators seem to be alleging here is that the CIA, under the authority of Executive Order 12333, is collecting a large number of U.S. persons' communications that just happen to be captured incidentally uh, through foreign surveillance efforts. Hmm. The problem is we really don't know exactly what they are alleging. Um, so a lot of their own letter is redacted. The response from uh, the CIA is is partially redacted. Um, everything that they've been declassified, you have to kind of learn how to read through black ink to really uh, <laughs> decipher it. Which right. is that a 200-level class in law school, uh, Ben? Or I, I really think they should. I mean, maybe they can create special glasses where you can see yeah, through it. Sure, but, sure. Uh, and I know our governments, you know, we've talked about incidents in the past where they actually do a bad job uh, redacting information. Right, you can see right. Little letters poking out. I, I could not do that here. <laughs> what I do know is there is a quasi-governmental board organization called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Hmm. And they do research, put out um, research papers on U.S. surveillance, uh, U.S. government surveillance efforts. And they released a report. Um, it was a long, uh, long-awaited report on Executive Order 12333. Uh, they released it a year ago. Um, I was really excited about the report, brought it up on my computer, read it for five minutes, and was like, that's it? Hmm. It was basically nothing. It was like as if somebody submitted a book report on Executive Order 12333 the night before it was due. And it was, you know, it was wow. the equivalent of reading, uh, this is what Executive Order 12333 does, but we can't really tell you very much. Right. Here's five yeah. pages on the history of it. <laughs> they summarized the summary in the book cover, the, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really was virtually nothing. Okay. Um, now, they wrote a comprehensive report, which was all classified, all redacted. Ah. And one of the uh, members of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board wrote a dissent from the majority, as if he were some sort of uh, Supreme Court justice, mm -hmm. Saying basically, um, you guys are misrepresenting this report. You really need to declassify more of it because the public isn't getting any useful information about what happens under this executive order. Hmm. Some of it must have been declassified to Congress, and that's probably where Senators Heinrich and Wyden are getting their information. I see. Um, you know, the one thing that stands out to me here is I, I thought at least it was pretty clear that we were collecting U.S. persons' communications incidentally through right. Executive Order 12333. I don't know why. It seems like they're sort of presenting that as if it's something new or, you know, some sort of radical discovery. It might be – there might be an interesting angle about, you know, it's the CIA and not the NSA who's collecting this information. Hmm. Um, but – you know, I think maybe they are using this as an opportunity to raise alarm bells about surveillance generally when we don't actually have that much useful additional information, mm. um, you know, based on what I can see in their letter and into the uh, report that they've linked to. Interesting. So what happens next with this? They, they wrote this letter. Where does it go from here? So the CIA um, will probably write a, a longer response. And responding to the articles about it, they've basically said – 
yes, we admit that there is some incidental collection under this executive order, but we comply with the executive order, all relevant laws, uh, et cetera. Hmm. In the long run, you know, Congress is is probably going to have to do something about the fact that there's this surveillance framework for overseas surveillance that's somewhat of the wild, wild west. I mean, it's not governed by any statute passed by Congress. Mm. Uh, and that used to not really be a problem because, frankly, most of us don't care about information we're gleaning from overseas sources. We thought that, you know, that right. only affects those people, right? right. Uh, not us. <laughs> right. But now with the way the internet works, you know, you and I could send an email to one another and that could end up on an overseas server in hmm. a variety of ways. Uh, and if the government was able to obtain that communication and one of us said something incriminating, they could use that for law enforcement purposes, even though not only did they not get a warrant for our individual conversation, they have no FISA court authorization to do the surveillance in the first place. It's and I, now, let me understand here. So, and in this, in the case you describe, neither of us are foreign nationals, as far as I know. That's so, correct. <laughs> so, just the fact that the I'm sorry, light bulb just went off mm-hmm. above my head. Just the fact that the data travels through a foreign country would be all they needed to gather it. Yes, because data that is collected overseas is not subject to FISA. FISA Hmm. applies to communications collected from our service providers or from the Internet backbone physically in the United States. So just just continue down this uh, admittedly conspiratorial pathway that my mind has now embraced. I love Uh, it. So you could imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, routing tables could be manipulated so as to send traffic, to intentionally send traffic to a friendly uh, ally and therefore be able to uh, collect information on American citizens without a warrant or having to deal with any of that pesky FISA stuff. Theoretically, yes. Um, and this isn't just us raising this concern. Do you remember when we talked about Schrems too? Yeah. The case in the European Court of Justice. I mean, the reason Schrems too exists is because there was concern among our European allies that we were sort of cavalier about our foreign intelligence surveillance efforts. Uh. And that communications, whether they are from U.S. persons or people subject to uh, the jurisdiction of the EU, because, you know— our overseas surveillance is only governed by, largely by this executive order, it can be ripe for abuse. And Hmm. so, you know, I think that reflects rather poorly on the United States. Congress could easily step in here and extend FISA or make explicit in FISA that um, it applies not just to domestic communications or our own internet service providers, um, but that it applies to all overseas surveillance as long as that surveillance concerns U.S. persons, even if their communications are collected incidentally. Hmm. Um, they they could do that. They For a variety of reasons, they haven't. And, you know, uh, last time I checked, unless you have two-thirds majorities in each House of Congress, you have to get it signed by a president. And guess what a president really likes? <laughs> a lot of power in an executive order. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Huh. There have been warnings for a long time about um, executive Order 12333. There was a, um op-ed in the Washington Post about eight years ago hmm. by a guy who worked in the State Department 
he said, look, you know, I, I'm not going to be a Snowden. I'm not going to leak information. But, um, you know, based on what I know, this is something to be concerned about. Hmm. And they asked the chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time, which was Dianne Feinstein, senator from California. And she said, I don't have enough information on what happens under 12333 to conduct oversight. Hmm. And then we get finally this Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board report that is a whole bag of nothing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at the very least, we need information that can be released to the public. Sure, it's going to be redacted, but it should give some indication of what kind of surveillance is taking place here, what kind of communications are being collected, and what's the scale of this collection. And it seems as though that is what uh, Senators Wyden and Heinrich are doing here, is trying to rattle that cage a bit. Absolutely. I think that's the reason they released this letter, and it worked. I mean, they got media attention for this story, and they got a bunch of headlines saying, is the CIA doing warrantless backdoor spying? Right. Um, so, you know, even though this might not be new information, uh, you know, it might be, it might have been a ripe time for them to raise this issue. All right. Yeah, well, interesting. As they say, time will tell and uh, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, my story uh, this week comes from uh, The Verge. Uh, they were the first to break this story, uh, written by Makina Kelly. And it's titled, New Algorithm Bill Could Force Facebook to Change How the News Feed Works. Now, Ben? We've got an acronym. <laughs> so there. let me just walk you through my, my own personal journey with this story. Oh, so this it. story came by, and I read it, and I thought to myself, ooh, this is a good story for caveat. Let's talk about this. In this story on The Verge, they talk about the Social Media Nudge Act. Nudge is capitalized, which means it's an acronym, right? So yep. our, my my acronym alarm went off. I was so disappointed. Crestfallen, Ben. Crestfallen. This article did not outline what Nudge stands for. I went looking at several different articles, and it seemed like most of them were written off of this primary article. Right. That, you know, Verge was first to write about it. And they also referenced the Social Media Nudge Act. None of them listed what nudge stood for. So you actually had to do some advanced research here. I actually went to the bill itself. Wow. <laughs> I, I, brought up, I brought up the bill on Legiscan, uh, which has the proposed bill. And it uh, turns out that the— Drumroll, please. Nudge yeah. stands for Nudging Users to Drive Good Experiences on Social Media Act. Now— Let's see if our listeners can hear this sigh. I want to call foul on using, having the N be nudge. Absolutely. When the when the acronym is nudge, this that's cheating. It is cheating. I I have to say, whoever the uh, the staffers were who were responsible for coming up on this, they really need to up their game. I'm disappointed in what they've done here. I so. completely agree. <laughs> All that aside, let's talk about the actual bill here. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, authored by Senators uh, Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, and uh, Cynthia Loomis from uh, Wyoming, Republican from Wyoming. Um, and this would direct the National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine to study content-neutral ways to add friction to content sharing online. And uh, as you read through this bill, they really repeatedly hit on that content-neutral thing, which right. 
obviously uh, you got to do these days, right? Because yep. w- w- everyone, uh, doesn't matter which side you're on, but I, I think it's fair to say that uh, folks from the right uh, really hammer on this notion that they're being silenced on social media. Uh, evidence notwithstanding. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but but everybody's going to cry bias, right? Right. Yeah. Both sides are going to cry bias. So the notion here is that social media platforms uh, need to have guardrails put on their algorithms. Uh, things need to be slowed down. The, the, the way that they amplify things and accelerate discord uh, needs to be, first of all, studied. And then something needs to be put into place. Um, and reading through this bill, there's it's a multi-year process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> first, first it gets studied by uh, the scientists, which hey, you know, all right, sure, good. that's what that, that's that's great. Let's, when in doubt, tell somebody else to study it. Well, and uh, you know, good that we're having actual scientists do the studying, right? Right, um, you know, rather than I don't know a think tank or a bunch of uh, you know. No, no offense, Ben, but academic wonks uh, yeah. <laughs> to study this, <laughs> it's sort, true. Of, this sort of thing. Um, and then they'll come back with recommendations, uh, which, which will then go to the Federal Trade Commission to try to put some rules on how these algorithms could work. So uh, it's interesting to me that this is uh, bipartisan. Um, I'm curious on your take on this, Ben. Do you think this has a chance of going anywhere? Yeah, I mean, I think this faces better prospects than other similar pieces of legislation. A, because it's bipartisan, and B, because it would really just kick off a process to try and develop some type of standard. So Mm -hmm. as you said, first it would go to the National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, to study how you can uh, produce content-neutral ways to add friction to content sharing online. So that's great. Then it goes to the FTC to actually implement that and create sanctions for companies who who don't abide by that. My suspicion is, you know, the controversy here won't be enacting this piece of legislation. It's going to be what ends up being produced by those organizations. Hmm. Um, You know, that's something that once that's produced— depending on who controls the FTC at the time, they might choose to just simply ignore those recommendations if they think, you know, this isn't sufficient or this is going to create bias. Uh, You know, some tech companies themselves have tried to, you know, engage in efforts to limit content sharing online for information that people might find disturbing. Right, right. Um, It's been a little bit, uh, oh, please don't throw me in the briar patch. Right. You know, I think they are trying to preempt government regulation, yeah. um, not always successfully. I'm not sure, you know, there, there's a fine line there, right? You know, you can suggest when people try and post something that's incendiary or based on false information, you can say, hey, are you sure you want to post this? Mm-hmm. Which Twitter and Facebook have been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if I try and throw out F-bombs and I'm using, uh, you know, Twitter for web, before I tweet it, I'll get a little warning saying, we're trying to maintain civil discourse here. <laughs> Slow down, potty mouth. Yeah, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> right. uh, that's great. I don't know. I, I'm, I haven't seen any research on whether that's effective, if it actually makes people second guess whether to, whether to post that information. Yeah. Um, if that is going to be the practice, you know, that's fine. I don't know that that's going to have that much of an impact on content moderation. Right. The other option is, of course, um, you know, 
coming in with a bigger stick and sanctioning individuals for posting this type of content, you know, kicking people off the platform. And that's when things get controversial and that's when people cry censorship. Yeah. So I just think, you know, the prospects of this bill are decent because it's really just kicking off a conversation, kicking off a, a process. Um, but whether this could actually create something durable would depend on, you know, what these agencies themselves can do to develop these standards. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that when you have something like this that's going to take several years to play out and you cast that in parallel to the pace at which these things change in social media in general and technology uh, and also, you know, calls to break up these companies, call, you know, there's there's all sorts of things happening at the same time. So all of those things will interact. And so it, it's hard to imagine an absolute outcome of this in in a in an area that has so much uh, chaos in it endemically. I completely uh, completely agree. I mean, you can see it even in the division between what's being proposed in the Senate in this bill and a separate bill I think we've talked about in the House, um, the Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms Act, mm. PADA, if you will. <laughs> um, that is uh. just proposed by two Democrats. It's not bipartisan. Right. And that bill comes with some sharper teeth. It would actually amend Section 230 to say that companies can now be held liable when it's found that they've amplified content that violates people's civil rights. Hmm. So we have the whole range of proposals here from let's study this and see if we can find a fair, equitable solution to let's remove this liability protection for big tech companies. So I just don't think we're really close on any sort of consensus as to how to address this problem. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that article in the show notes. uh, So do check that out. We would love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like us to cover or a question for me or for Ben, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently uh, had an interesting conversation with Ron Brash from a company called Adalus. Uh, And we were discussing software attack vectors faced by the shipping community. And when I say shipping community, we're not talking about, uh, you know, FedEx or UPS or the Postal Service. We're talking about those giant cranes at ports that... Literal ships. Well, ships, yeah. And the the, the devices that are used to uh, move those huge shipping containers on and off the ships. Uh, Some interesting elements here that Ron describes. Here's my conversation with Ron Brash. Well, I think there's two pieces, and there's actually even a secondary act uh, that that's coincides with it that's also very interesting. 
What's kind of probably driving it is the dependence of nations, right? Everybody wants to be independent. Everyone wants to reduce their dependence on other countries, which are maybe uh, affecting the power balance of the East versus the West. But regardless of that, there's this one particular company that uh, has either been audited and, and or at least uh, been associated directly with the with a foreign state government. And so this one company is kind of putting some of these ports at risk, maybe because of the quality of the products, maybe because there's some sort of uh, nefarious intelligence that you and I don't know. But whatever that reason, there's one company that controls probably over 70% of the, the port crane market. And that's across the world. And they're undercutting their competitors by, by a significant amount. Uh, and, and so uh, the, the kind of the basis, the foundation of this act is to ban those pieces of software and even the software that's connected to or the, the software contained in those cranes or those cranes themselves to be banned from, from U.S. operating ports to halt new uh, deployments of new cranes. And, and so that's kind of the basis of it. So it's, it's a sort of a sanction of, uh, in a way for self-protectionism. And what does this do to the operators of the ports? If, if this uh, if this Chinese company has such big market shares, is this going to be a headache for them? It'll absolutely be a headache for them. I mean, imagine uh, if you know you, you were looking to to make your margins work. You were planning out forklift uh, upgrades, such as a big crane, a mega crane. It's going to affect you because all of your previous budgets you established, all of your estimates, all of your quotes are all going to be thrown out the window. You might have to then say, I, I'm going to have to dial back on any, uh, I don't know, capability upgrades, right? The, the inputs and outputs of what a port can actually do. How many uh, CCANs can they move per day? That's absolutely going to affect the way that you do business. All of your first perceived forecasts, especially if you're a, a financial-based organization and less of a state-owned type thing, right? If you're privatized, you're going to care about those things because you're thinking about big lifetime investments of your facilities. So it's going to make them panic. Uh, it's going to increase the cost of business. And, and to be fair, not just affecting the systems, most countries don't, uh, don't infect their products that they actually build. If you were to attack another country, probably use their own software and their own OEMs against that country just for various reasons. So it's going to cause a lot of headaches for the end asset owners. It's going to affect probably shipping, which we're every day we're more and more uh, reliant on even though we'd like to bring home manufacturing to our, our native continents, but it's going to, it's going to drive them crazy. And they're going to have five years to even remove stuff from, uh, from cranes they already have deployed. And they'll have to either retrofit them or, or just stop operating them altogether. So there's, it's going to be, it's going to be a major pain, but as with anything with sanctions, the, the pros and the cons uh, sometimes don't match realities or their intended outcomes. I guess I'm trying to understand what the specific risk would be here. I mean, admittedly, uh, not knowing very much about port cranes, but I think it's one of those things that we all rely upon but probably don't give a whole lot of thought to. I imagine, you know, these cranes lifting containers off of ships and, and putting them, you know, down where they need to be sent and so on and so forth. I suspect there's more to it than that, that these cranes are... Is there information that these cranes are are uh, managing, or is it simply a matter that someone from offshore could disable them? It's more of a, uh, I think, a remote uh, disablement risk or threat vector, right? And also, I mean, we saw that with the the Evergrande, uh, or not Evergrande, sorry, the Evergreen incident with the with the freighter being stuck in the Swiss Canal. The ma the major challenge with with those things, right, is you have all of a sudden you have a major backup, and you know goods can't go in and out, uh, sea cans can't go back to the place of manufacturing. You wind up with 
effectively a hoarding problem of sea cans, right? If you can't get them loaded and put back, sent back, they're on, they're on rent. You wind up with issues with crews and visas because most shipping companies uh, don't actually directly employ the individuals on the ship. That's an outsourced company or a company and their resources are on that ship. Terminals versus ship ownership are, are two different things as well. So there's a lot of things that could be cascaded and affected. The main risk from a suspicion point is yes, uh, the, the third party, the, the nation, you know, th- nation threat protectionism, those are probably going to be the main drivers. But really, I suspect what it is is to rebalance the market. Uh, the real aims is to rebalance the market and to have more American made cranes or, uh, American sponsored manufacturing of cranes. It could be, they could be made in Mexico, for example, and those to be deployed, de- deployed in the ports. That's what the real, uh, justice is probably about. But also maybe putting a, a name or an enemy in, a, in an act. But we should have been also doing all of these security assessments all along. So there's a fundamental good that's coming out of this, but maybe for the wrong reasons. So we should all be concerned about it. But the main piece is probably going to be destruction. Is this act, as it's been proposed, is, is there a lot of pushback on it? Or are, is, is there a negotiation phase that we're in? There might be a bit of a negotiation phase, particularly around uh, leniency on, you know, exceptions to the five year date. You know, one of the, one of the statements in the first act, uh, which is the HR 6487 is you, you, you cannot operate any new machinery as of the time of the enactment. You have 180 days to do a review. You may not operate any foreign software related to or embedded in the crane after five years of enactment in 1.3A2. Those are very consequential things. Those are the real pieces of this that are going to drive people crazy. Are there aspects to particularly the shipping community you know, when it comes to security, when it comes to software attack vectors that, uh, that go um, underreported, that the people generally don't understand, things that you wish people knew more about? Well, for one thing, I mean, if we always think about third-party risk, I mean, shipping probably has one of the largest third-party risk uh, profiles possible. I mean, there's some other industries that would be very similar, but shipping is very big because if there's, you have various companies coming in and out of your sites, you have possibly subcontractors operating various things, you have different, different unions, you have different this and that, and, and it's always changing. One of probably the most misunderstood challenges is validating integrity anywhere in shipping. How can you actually validate what is in that sea can is supposed to be there, right? That's a very traditional thing. Are there drugs in there? Does the manifest match? So on and so on. Again, you have different resources in there. How do I know that someone did not install uh, via USB stick in a, in a PLC cabinet that was unlocked an update or something changes? Those same things are true on the navigation systems on ships. Sometimes it's very simple to modify the, the, the nav systems on board a ship for, for the, for the helm. Those are all big concerns. So probably one of the biggest underreported and misunderstood, but also probably the most prevalent across the all, all of those different audiences in shipping is the ability to actually validate integrity of the data, validate integrity of devices in use. That from an electro- electronic standpoint is going to be a massive uh, understated risk. Same with modernizing and updating ports uh, or effectively performing electronic maintenance. Those are two major issues that I foresee going to raise a lot of questions and 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 cause a lot of challenges. All right, Ben, what do you think? 
So most of what I knew about port security came from The Wire Season (laughs) 2. I was rather uneducated on this topic. It was really interesting. Um, And certainly the bill you you referenced that's been proposed, I think there are security justifications for it. Um, The other side of the ledger is we've had all of these supply chain problems in the Mm -hmm. past year. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've heard about supply chain issues emanating from the inefficiencies at our ports. There have been these horror stories of ships lined up in in Southern California and we just don't have the personnel or the equipment to offload them quickly enough. So I think you have to strike a balance between efficiency and security. Um, My instinct, just based on hearing about that bill uh, and listening to your conversation, is that just the bill just might be a step too far in the direction of protecting it's, security. I was going to say, it seems like there's some protectionism baked in as well. Right. It is favoring um, U.S. industries, which yeah. obviously Congress do, does that all the time. And sure. You, um, that, that's part of legislating. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you have to balance the very legitimate security concerns when we're talking about foreign companies with, you know, we need to keep our supply chain moving. Right. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Ron Brash. Again, he is the VP of Research and Critical Infrastructure at uh, software security firm Adalus. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.